in chapter 4, James has been comparing the life of the humble with the life of the proud. And, and after showing us our need of grace, James then details what a life looks like that, that receives that grace or positions is positioned to receive that grace. He says the life of the humble is a life of, of repentance. He begins in verse 7 to, 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 to color in the lines of this, this life of the, of the humble. In verse 7, submit to God. He says the humble arrange themselves under the lordship of Christ. They, they resist the devil. and they, they resist what is contrary to God. They they, they worship God. They, they draw near to God, and He'll draw near to them. They, they pursue holiness. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and glorify and purify your hearts, you double-minded. They, the life of the humble, they grieve over their sin, lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to, to mourning and your joy to gloom. And They, they fight and, and take sin seriously. And he ends this description with the, with the exhortation, to humble ourselves before the Lord. And, and if we do that, God will, God will lift us up. In, in verse, verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will exalt you. He will lift you, lift you up. However, just as we can live a humble life, as he describes in these, these imperatives that we just ran through, it's also possible to live an arrogant life. And the danger in living an arrogant life as a, as a Christian, as, or I guess as any person, is that, that God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. We all need grace. But this, this is pretty powerful verses, ones at least to consider. That, that the way that you live, whether, you're, whether you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, will, will reveal or, or, or will, will help you see whether whether you can expect God to stiff-arm you or whether you can expect the Lord to, to lift you up, exalt you. And, and no one wants to be, be labeled proud. No one sets out and says, I'm going to live an arrogant life. I mean, nobody does that. Nobody's going to do that for 2014. I think what's so helpful about these passages is what we normally think of being proud and arrogant. James really puts, puts some, some meat on those bones. He shows us what... What, what a proud life looks like. And, and when I read these passages that we're working through, um, it, it's, it helps me connect the dots. shows me that I can live in a, in a proud way without even, even realizing it. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to, to be proud because it brings God's rebuke and it sounds bad. But, but just what exactly does living arrogantly look like? I mean, when I think of a proud person, I think of somebody who, who walks around with their nose up in the air, has a I'm better than you, than you attitude. But James really outlines three areas of, of living that, that he says we need to pay attention to. He, he, gives, us, he gives us commands to not, not do these things. A person who lives arrogantly does so or is revealed in the way they treat others in verses 11 and 12. That's what we covered last Sunday. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of his brother or judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. A person who lives arrogantly is, is revealed in, in the way they plan their lives. Verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go and spend a year here and we'll do this and buy and sell and make a profit. 
You don't even know whether tomorrow is going to come for you. Your life is a, is a vapor. And a person who lives arrogantly and therefore sets themselves up for God's stiff arm rather than His, His more grace, as James says, is we're going to look at today is it's revealed in how they use their things. How we use our positions and how we use our possessions. And a person may not think that they're proud, but but pride is shown in arrogant speech, arrogant appraisals of others. It's shown in presumptuous planning. And it's shown in misuse of God-given resources and power in light of eternity. And that's key. I'll show you that this morning. So we've already read the passage. And um, so we're going we're gonna to jump right in this morning. There are three lifestyles here that, that can cut us off from grace that we need. And we're looking at three ways to live a grace-filled life. We're evaluating how we treat others, how we plan our days, and how we use our things. And last week we said we must not make arrogant appraisals, but treat others with the same grace that, that we need. That's what he covers in verses 11 through 12. This idea that we covered Sunday night, for those of you who weren't, weren't here, you must not be presumptuous in how you plan, but you live every day devoted to God. You devote your plans to God in verse 13 through, through 17. James says there the proud presume. Planning's not the problem in, in these passages. It's presumptuous planning. It's, it's saying that you run your business, you run your life like a functional atheist. You claim God, but then you live... You, you go to work and you, you, you develop your business plan. You, you decide your, your New Year's resolutions. You decide the things that need to happen in your home, how your home runs on a daily basis. You plan without God. You, you pretend like He doesn't exist. And, and, and the proud boast about human life. They boast about the certainty of their plans and, and they ignore God's daily providence. I mean, the reason, he says here, turn this positively, he says, don't be presumptuous in your planning. The reason that you should dedicate your planning to God, dedicate your life to God, is because His providence is at work every moment of every day. I mean, God has plans for you. I mean, one of the verses that was, that was read, I can't remember whose it was, on, at, at homecoming, the favorite verses of the, of the individuals there was, was the passage in Jeremiah about God. He knows the plans that, that He has for you. God has plans, and those plans are worked out in providence. And so you need, you need to set your plans subservient to, to the fact that the Lord is at work, and, and He is, is doing things in your life, in your business, and whatever, whatever it is. And right after planning... In chapter 5, James transitions beyond the planning to what happens when possessions come into your, come into your lap. Believers and unbelievers, whether they plan right or whether they don't plan right, can find themselves with possessions and positions and power. And so he's going to say how we use those or misuse those will reveal whether we're self-sufficient and proud people or whether we actually are humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord. One of the classic movies, we did it as a, as a musical at TCS, was, was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Now, not the new one, but the old one. That's the one I remember. And at the end of the original movie, whenever uh, Mr. Wonka reveals 
that young Charlie, he's the winner, you know, he's the, he's the poor, a poor, poor boy that, that has nothing and he has the right heart and he wins the contested and, and now Mr. Wonk is taking him to the factory and telling him how his life is, is, is going to be. And, and I don't remember exactly where it's at in the movie, whether it's where the, the elevator, the Wonkavator busts through the ceiling or not, but at some point, this, this, there's this intimate moment where the camera zooms in just on Mr. Wonka and Charlie and, and he crouches down and he says to Charlie, Charlie, do you know what happened to the boy who got everything that he wanted? You remember that moment? And Charlie anticipates and says, no. You know what? And Mr. Wonka says he lived happily ever after. I hope what's going through your mind is, what a lie. <laughs> Is that true? Is it true that if you got everything you wanted in life, you would live happily ever after? It's not true. It would be happily ever after if you used everything in life in light of eternity. That's what would cause you to live happily ever after. If you got everything you wanted and then you used everything you had in light of the fact that you're going to stand before the Lord one day and there is where your true reward is going to be as a Christian. You're going to receive the crowns for serving Him and you're going to be able to lay those back at His feet and say all praise and honor to you, Lord Jesus. The things that we have here... Give us the capacity for praise in eternity. I mean, think about that. God has placed things in your possession. He's put you in positions of authority. He's put you in, in positions with, with, with the influence of other people. And what you do with those is the capacity for which you get to praise God for all eternity, right? Right? I mean, when you stand before the beam of seat of Christ as a Christian, your sin's already dealt with. It's done. It was nailed to the cross. You're not going to stand there in condemnation before God. If you, if you don't know Christ, if you've never been born again, you will stand before a completely different judgment, the great white throne. But for a believer, you stand before, before the seat of Christ, your Lord. And, and there, you as an individual... Stand before Jesus Christ, God Almighty, and He will, at that moment, give an evaluation of your life. And He says that in that evaluation, what you have done for Him, what will last, He will reward you. And then, once you receive that reward, you're not going to pat yourself on the back and say, I'm so glad that I lived a self-sufficient life. You're going to take that and you're going to throw it right back down at his feet and say, what, what do I have to be rewarded for? It's all you. And anything that I did do well, was, was because of the power of, of your spirit. Here, here they are, Lord. The Bible says that, that when, you, when you stand before the Lord and an evaluation of your life is done, that will determine the capacity for which you'll serve in the kingdom. I mean, we, we joke all of the time, at least we do on, on staff and and, and I joke with other people, we're going to be serving our wives in heaven. You know, they, 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 they serve us here in some capacity, but we're going to, we're going to be take, we're going to be looking at the backs of their heads. I mean, they're going to be so close to Jesus, and we're going to be so far away, we're going to barely be able to make them out. At least for some of us, that is. 
the capacity with which you have to praise God for all eternity is directly equated in the Bible with what you do with your possessions and your positions and your influence that you have right here. James says that if you live a proud life, there's a way to live proud with your, with your possessions that will completely obliterate all of that. The prayer of a believer is not, God, give me everything I want. prayer of a believer is in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, give me neither poverty nor, nor riches. I'll paraphrase it. God, give me just enough. Give me just enough so I won't deny you. I won't, I won't forget about you. Don't give me too much where I'll forget about God. And, and don't give me too little where I'm going to grumble or, or complain or, or do even worse. Steal. Profane the name of my God. God, give me... Our prayers, believers, ought to be, God, give me the exact amount that I need to remain in love with you and be faithful. And whatever I have, help me to use it for, for you. And right now, you have possessions, and you have power, and you have positions. And wherever you find yourself that God has placed, placed you, and whatever He's placed in your hands, He intends you to, to use it in light of, of eternity. And it's a clear indicator. So the third that we're looking for, how we, how we use our things, we must not misuse our resources but use them generously as God has allowed us to obtain them. Now, it's very important. If you look at, look at James 5.1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. It's very important to apply this verse properly. So here's what I want you to do. Okay, I want you to picture in your mind's eye somebody doesn't have to be somebody that is around here, just somebody on TV or somebody in general. Picture in your mind somebody that you consider wealthy. Picture in your mind somebody that you consider wealthy. You have that, you have that person in your mind? You have the picture in your mind? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remove their face, and I want you to put your face right where theirs was. Because James is addressing you and me in context here of our day. The rich in James' day would have been those who had property, those who had possessions, and who likely owned a home. It was someone who didn't, who did not live as a day laborer. That's who the rich were. Meaning that they had to earn money to eat that very day. They're a day laborer. I have to labor today in order to get my bread for this evening. Anybody else other than that, James would consider falling into the category of, of, of the rich. Now, you may think you live paycheck to paycheck, but I don't see anybody in here that looks like they're going hungry, right? He's addressing the Donald Trumps for sure. But in our day, he's addressing all of us living within the blessings of America. I mean, sure, some people have more than others. But there's a reason that everybody wants to come to this country, right? Because even the poor, those who are considered poor in, in, in our country, are considered rich comparatively to the rest of the world. Some, some argue that he's speaking to unbelievers here, and maybe so. He calls them you rich, as before he was talking about brethren, but... But I don't find any transition in the text that, that, that demands that. As a matter of fact, I think it flows, these three things flow together quite, 
quite nicely with the theme of, of pride. Well, it's contrary to Christianity to, to arrogantly appraise others and to forget about God in, in planning, in your daily business. People may become successful in earthly things. And that's the final area that puts a test to your, to your religion. James is answering, what will you do if God allows the success that you hope for? Will you use it for Him or will you, will you hoard it? Now, I hope you, 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 you know that the Bible does not condemn wealth. In fact, it's used as a, as a sign of blessing at times in the land in the, in the Old Testament. There's nothing spiritual about wealth. It's, James is not condemning wealth. He's condemning fraud and oppression and self-indulgence that comes from hoarding possessions rather than, rather than use them. Just as the way that you evaluate others is a, is a revealer of the heart, just as you plan without God is a revealer of the heart, when you have possessions, whatever you have, whether you've got a dollar or whether you've got a hundred million, it reveals the, it reveals the heart. And he comes on strong here. Look at verse 1. I mean, this is a prophetic tone. This is like in the Old Testament prophets. Do you think that, you think that I'm hard on you sometimes in the way that I speak sermons? I mean, you go back to the, read the Old Testament prophets and you'll find out what a, what a real fiery preacher's like. Like James here. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. Now, I want you to notice the tense. In some of these, some of these verbs here, or the way he's talking. James is saying you need to evaluate how you're using resources based upon what is coming upon you. And in doing so, if you find that you're not using your position, your power, or your possessions in light of that day, then you should mourn. That's what he's saying. You should weep and howl. He's already given a conclusion about the people that he's writing to here. I'm not assuming that you're doing what James is saying here. James already knows that these people are doing it, so we're using it as an evaluation tool. He's saying, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. He's, he's making a definitive statement about what they're already doing. These are proud people. They are living arrogantly with their power and their position and their possession. It's not how much money that they have, but, but how God will evaluate what they did with it. And if you live like the people in, in this verse, you will cry and mourn because you'll realize the great missed opportunity that you have. Okay, so he starts in verse 1 with his evaluation of their life, their current, their current, the currently, the way that they're living, in light of what is coming upon them, he'll tell us that that is actually the judgment. And now he's going to give us a diagnosis of the issue. Verse two. He says, "Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you. A witness against you when? On that same day, when." When the miseries are coming upon them, and will eat your your flesh like a like a fire, you have heaped up, you have hoarded treasure 
in these last days. Indeed, the wages of your laborers who are mowing your fields, which you kept back by fraud, you're not paying your people appropriately, you're, you're getting rich off of, off of their misery. They cry out against you. The cries of your reapers have reached the ears of the Lord. You've lived on, on earth in pleasure and luxury. You fatten your hearts as in the days of slaughter. The pleasure and luxury in which you're, you're living is, it's like, it's like a cow who's, who thinks that he is really getting a good meal. Man, my master is so good to me. And he's packing on the pounds all the while the master knows what's coming. Why he's packing on the pounds? He says, you're doing that to yourself. In the day of slaughter, you have condemned, you've murdered the just and those that you do don't, don't resist. In verse 2, when he says your riches, there are three phase, phrases that he uses here to describe the nature of your sin. Your riches are rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. And, and, and all three are phrases in which people accumulated wealth in, in James' day. The, the riches or the wealth in, in, is a general word which included food and livestock in, in an agricultural society. Wine and grain and oil were all part of one's wealth. And, and he says that they rot. Clothing or garments were how you displayed your wealth. You remember in, Jan, or in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it speaks about uh, a woman coming into church making sure that that yes, she's modest, but, but more importantly, she's not dressing in such a way that she draws attention to herself rather than to the Lord. You know, he talks about the hair that, that you get, you read it in the, in the King James and it sounds like a beehive and she's got stuff put in her hair and you, your ladies today are going, why in the world would people like put stuff in their hair? Well, they displayed their wealth in, in, in the, the shells and the, the things that they put in their hair and, and their dress was the way that they, the way that they displayed it. I mean, we have ways of displaying wealth in our society. That's the ways that they displayed wealth. And, and those, the, there were ladies coming into the church in Ephesus with a, you know, just dressing like a neon sign. Look at me, look at me, look at what I have. And when you come to church, it ought to be, look at the Lord, look at the Lord, don't look at me. And here, clothing garments are just the way that they, they displayed wealth and prestige. And he says, it's moth-eaten. I mean, this pile of stuff that, that you're accumulating, you're hoarding, it's, it's, uh, it's rotting. The beautiful clothes, moss, it's moth-eaten. Gold and silver, it, it decays. Gold and silver doesn't decay, but it, it's, a, it's a way of saying that it's going to perish. Now, is James preaching the economics of enough? Is, is he a progressive He's not setting a ceiling on your bank account here. That's far too shallow from what James is saying. He, he's aiming deeper, exposing the nature of a multi-layered sin. Verse 1, he, said, he talks about what is coming upon you, and he talks about what you stored up in the last days in, in verse, verse 3. Now, all of these possessions are in the perfect tense. You can't see that in the, in the English, but... but but he's saying, based upon what you possess right now, the way that you're living with these things right now, what you're doing with these things right now, a judgment's being declared in the, in the future. 
James is not saying their clothes actually has, have holes in them right now. He's saying the fact that you have those and you're hoarding them up, they're worthless. It's, it's, the judgment that is coming is, is based, on the, based on the here and now. They're temporary. They're unreliable right now. Because life will surely end and hoarding is fleeting. And, and that's why they're to, to weep. Well, they didn't see that. I remember one time when I, I was a kid and I don't know, I watched some TV show about some, you know, the, the guys that go out and do the, uh, what's it called, the metal detectors, de, you know, buried treasure. I think at one point in my life I wanted to be an archaeologist because I just thought that would be cool to find buried stuff. So I went out and I took some money and I put it in a jar, put the lid on it and dug it, you know, dug a hole somewhere up on the, the hillside and I buried this, buried this money with the intent of coming back later, you know, maybe when I was a teenager. This is, I was probably Jared's age at that point. And at that point, you know, in my mind as a young kid, it's going to be really old then. And it's going to be worth, you know, twenty hundred million times whatever it was in the, you know, in the jar. Well, the jar's still there. I never dug it up. I completely forgot about it. Somebody's going to dig it up and find something and probably make some money. James is saying to these, these that he's writing to here, the wealth that you have now, that it's like you're burying it into the hillside of the world. Rather than, and you're never going to go dig it up because you're using it for your, yourselves. It's worthless if you have no intention of using it for Christ. You can hear the Sermon on the Mount in these verses, can't you? Your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, the corrosion will be a witness against you. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys or where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of this happens. It's not a new concept. Sermon on the Mount tells us why. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And James is pointing that the way we use our things is an evidence of a proud life. It's an evidence of whether our hearts are submitted to the Lordship of Christ or not. He's not saying money is, is evil. He's not saying wealth and garments and gold and silver are forbidden for a believer. He's not even saying accumulating them is forbidden for a believer. It's accumulating them without the intent of using them. And that shows the true motivation of the heart. He's saying, look at your bank account, look at your garage, look at, look at your closets. Tracy's word for the weekend has been purge. Is there evidence as you do that of your heart finding fulfillment in acquiring things rather than pleasure in using them for Christ? I mean, you may have a, you may have a bunch of junk in your attic in your garage just because you're busy like everybody else and, and you haven't had time to, to, to clean it out. You give it an honest evaluation. It's not spiritual to be intentionally self-condemning any more than it is to be blind to your sin. He's saying as you do that, though, is there a reason that you're obtaining it rather than, rather than using it? It's not about the amount, but about the hoarding and about the intention. He's saying here the rich 
They're in, they're in James 5. They're saying, oh, I love Jesus. I praise Him for all these wonderful things that He's given to me to use for His glory. Look how God has blessed me. And the pile is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and nothing was leaving the pile. <laughs> He's saying our piles of stuff can reveal that we really love the pile and not the God who gave it to us. He really ties... The, the way that the proud acquire resources in verses 13 through 17, they plan presumptuously, and sometimes those, pl- those plans come to fruition. Sometimes bad things happen. You actually get what you want, what you pursue. <laughs> and now he's tying into what, what we do with them whenever we, we get them. The proud forget God in planning. And now they forget the one who gave them the power or the positions or the, the, the possessions. Now I keep saying position and possessions because, because in looking in verse, verse 4, he talks about in verse 3 heaping up. In verse 4, he talks about the, the wages, the laborers who have mowed your field, you kept back by fraud. And the cries of the reapers have, have reached the the ears of the of the Lord. Here's a person who is in the position of of doling out the salaries or the money or the or the whatever it is. And and here's a person who who this is not mandating that we set a minimum wage. This is saying that that whatever is fair, you're making that decision because they're your possessions. You do that rather than withholding it to line your own pockets. It's like Matthew the tax collector, right? He's collecting for he's collecting for, for the Romans, but he's lining his pockets the same time. You're in a position, you have influence, you have influence over other people. Do you use those positions and those influence to help yourself climb the ladder a little bit higher, or do you use that to help people who, who are beneath you? Reveals the heart. Misplaced purpose. There's a show, um, I think it's on A&E, called Hoarders. You've seen the show Hoarders? And the promo on it describes this each 60-minute episode of a fascinating look inside the lives of different people whose inability to part with their belongings is so out of control, they're on the verge of a personal crisis. They hype it up. So you go, wow, man, I'd really like to watch somebody self-implode. Let me get a bag of popcorn and I'll do that. Hmm. Frankly, I cannot believe that there's that many people out there that they can... I mean, they just keep making episode and episode. I mean, I'm like, do they, do they, you know, do they pay people to do this? I mean, I just can't believe... Trace and I live beside a lady who was a hoarder in, in, in Riverdale. And she was a single woman, and her husband had left her, and it was a bad deal. And, and the outside of her house was falling apart, and, and I finally got an opportunity to help her after, after winning her trust over years, and she didn't want to let anybody in her home because it looked so bad, and it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it really was what you'd see on, on, on TV. None of her plumbing had worked for years. She didn't take her trash out. You know, this lady has a job. It's completely normal. I mean, on the outside, but her life was a was was a disheveled mess on the 
on the inside. He was sick to walk into the house. I mean, when I first got into the house, I mean, the, the front living room, which would, have been, which would have been where the dining room was, the ceiling had fallen through because, because her shingles had, uh, you know, had rotted and, and all this water comes down. And you know what drywall looks like after it gets wet? And I mean, this has been years of neglect. But she was so embarrassed of the inside of her home, she didn't want to let anybody in to fix it. And she couldn't fix it herself, so she just kept you know, letting it get, get worse and worse. And it was, I mean, the stench was unbelievable. Stuff piled up everywhere. And you walk out of that, and you walk back in your own home, and you, know, you think, wow, how sad. And you think, how can people live that way? I read these passages, and I wonder if that's what God thinks of of me whenever he looks at my life or my possessions with the reality of eternity and the brevity of life. How can a person live that way? James says we would live a life of accumulation without any, any outflow. It's illogical. It's not just illogical, it's condemning. That pile will be the witness against you on the last day. Just like when the pile gets bigger and bigger and there's more and more that goes out for the kingdom and otherwise, that, that outflow will be a witness for you on the last day in which you get an opportunity to give praise to God. You see the blessing? The blessing is, is, in, is in allowing the pile to grow and then, and then giving the opportunity to you to be able to give more praise to Jesus when He rewards you on the last day not on accumulating the pile, but that's what the world's about, right? Accumulating. He who dies with the most toys wins. What a sad, sad lie. Don't try to win the lottery. Amen. Don't try to win the lottery. Lives are destroyed. He says your possessions are, in fact, the very evidence. In verse 3b, against you, proving that you didn't see them as a gift of God to be used as He directed. You know, I read this and I think how different from the health, wealth, false teachers who say the evidence of God's favor is your wealth. <laughs> now, the evidence of God's favor is that, that, that you live a humble life, there's grace, that, that you have it and that you're using it. That's evidence of, of, of God's favor. The world typically looks at the bank statements, the IRAs, the acreage, and judges our success by that. And God says as believers, our gauge is, is not, what we, not what we lack, but, but what we've acquired and then, and then used. And that ground's level, no matter what you have. Now think about this. I've, I've quoted this to you before, and I think it's a good time to remind you of it. The Bible, just like in verses 13 through 17, he doesn't condemn planning. You can't read verses 13 and 17 and say, well, I better not plan. I better not think ahead. I better not, I better not do a business plan. I better not have a strategy for life because I might be successful. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's saying plan and do that. As a matter of fact, we looked on Wednesday night. He commands us to go to the ant. 
and learn from an itty-bitty insect in creation and learn that we should plan. It's planning without God is the problem. He tells us in the Word. In if you if you want to look at verses five or chapter five verses verses one through one through six, he he's not saying that that it's that it's bad to work hard and accumulate stuff. As a matter of fact, the Bible commands that you work hard. Second Thessalonians says, chapter three verse ten, you're commanded that if any would not work, neither should they eat. So said Proverbs six verses six through eight says, don't be a sluggard, be diligent in your work. I love God's word translation, which is not a translation, it's more of a paraphrase. It's in Proverbs six it says, Consider the ant, you lazy bum, watch its ways and become wise. That's a it's a West Virginia straight talk of Proverbs six. Diligence in business is every man's wisdom and duty. So what do you do when you obtain worldly wealth? What then? Is James condemning that? No. If you work hard, especially in our society, at least the way that it is currently, if you work hard, there's a good possibility the natural outcome will be you will do well. You have opportunities that nobody else on the planet has because of the country that you live in. You may not be Bill Gates, but in this country you're likely to be more than a beggar if you don't want to be a beggar. So what do you do? Some say you should you should uh, not work to make money. But I think that's completely illogical, not to mention very unmotivating. I mean, it's a natural thing that you expect a wage. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that a laborer is worthy of his what? Hire. You're supposed to pay people. It's not bad to make money. It's not bad to pay people. As a matter of fact, you're condemned. They're condemned in this verse for not paying people properly. So what do you do? John Wesley wrestled with this, said this about what James was saying in 1787. This is what he observed. Quote, I fear, talking about living in, in this country, 1787, he says, I fear whenever riches have increased... The essence of religion, the mind that was in Christ, has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. And he's saying that, that if you... If you are truly a believer, if a religious revival has come to you, that that's going to produce industry and frugality, and that can't help but produce riches stuff. But then he goes on, but as riches increase, so will pride and anger and love of the world and all of its branches. How then is, is it possible that the religion of heart, though it flourishes now as a green bay tree, would, con, would continue in this state, for believers in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionally increase in pride, in the desire of the flesh, in the desire of the eyes, in the, provi- in the pride of life. Is there no way to prevent this? 
Wesley asked the question. We ought not to forgive people to be diligent and frugal. We must exhort all Christians to gain all they can and to save all they can. This is, in effect, to grow rich, Wesley says. What then? I ask again. Can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell? There is one way. There is no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. Now that's a beautiful picture of the American dream. That's a beautiful picture of the opportunities that we have as individuals and as a country. Work as hard as you can, save as much as you can, and grow in possession so that you may give as much as you can so that on the day in which you stand before the Lord, your capacity to praise Him for all eternity will be increased. It's not make as much as you can to take from you to give to other people who won't work. It's not to make as much as you can so you can be the wolf of Wall Street and live the party life. Your possessions, your position, and your power in light of that day in which we'll stand before the Lord is how we live and how we think. And if we don't, it reveals arrogance and pride. And so Wesley, I think, gives a solution. Glorify God in your work. Work hard. Gain all that you legally and can honestly gain. Be a good businessman. There's nothing ungodly about diligence and profit. In fact, lacking diligence may be a sign of sin. Be educated. Pursue excellence and work. Gain all you can. Don't waste it. So you can give all you can and grow in grace. And if you don't, whatever you have, when you die with that pile of toys, that will be a witness against you on that, that day. The last days James uses here. You've done this in the last days. Heaps the condemnation. He's saying the Messiah has already come. I mean, this would have been bad enough if it was in the Old Testament times, but Jesus has come. He's died and He's rose from the dead and you know about Him and you know He's coming back. It makes it worse. What a great promise and a great warning. Inspire heads. Wouldn't it be telling the end of every every year American Express sends me a summary of all of my credit card purchases for the year. Wouldn't it be telling if we had a graph of what we've made and accumulated versus what we've made and used for God? Wouldn't it be telling? Work is the remedy for idle temptation. Giving is the antidote to greed. I think it's comical people 
argue over whether tithing is a New Testament principle when the average believer gives 1.5 to 3% a year. <laughs> the beginning of the year is a great opportunity to, to push the reset button. Maybe you need to push the reset button in, in how you evaluate and speak against others. Maybe you need to push the reset button in, in, in how you live. You live as Christ as Lord or not. Maybe you need to, to push the reset button in, in light of your possessions and your position and, and your power. All in light of Christ. In whatever condition you find yourself in, if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will exalt you. What a great truth.